And I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. Uh, we have been in a series these last couple weeks that we've entitled The Five Solas. And it is good to be back home. This is about one of the longest times I've been away uh, from our pulpit. I've had the opportunity to preach at some of the other campuses. And uh, I know you have had the opportunity to hear from our other campus pastors with regards to this series that we have said is The Five Solas. And uh, The Five Solas may be a new phrase for you. Maybe you're coming in for the first time uh, in this series. Maybe you've been gone for the last couple weeks and you're like, what in the world is this five solas? It doesn't seem to make any sense. We want you to know that 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, as a church, we wanted to take a couple weeks, five in fact, uh, here in the summer, uh, to dedicate some time to reminding us what that has in our lineage, what that uh, Reformation has to do with how we look at God, how we look at Jesus Christ, how we look at uh, church leadership, our way to salvation. And so uh, back in the day, in, in 1517, Martin Luther saw a lot of vices within the church. The church had fallen upon hard times. It began to do things that seemed out of line with regards to Scripture. And he began to investigate. He began to look and try to understand what does the Bible have to say about things. And the more he examined the Scriptures, the more he found out the church that he loved was out of step. In fact, he would say at one point they had lost the gospel altogether. That it was difficult to understand what, what the gospel meant in looking at the church. And so what he began to do is call for reform. He began to call for changes to take place. And he wouldn't be the only one. Men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and others who paved the way for this reform to take place would begin to uh, share their level of beliefs, their, their system of beliefs through five Latin terms. We've seen a couple of them. Uh, we've studied sola scriptura. It is uh, the scriptures alone that are our final authority. No group of men, no, no uh, supreme leader tells us uh, that they are the authority. Scripture alone is our authority. We learned last week, sola fide. It is through faith alone. You cannot do any amount of good works. You can't do anything else to receive salvation except through faith and then it moves on to uh, sola gratia through grace alone god's unmerited favor towards us is how we receive eternal life and then we recognize this is all for god's glory sola deo gloria to the glory of god alone it's not for our glory it's not for the church's glory it's not for anyone's glory except for god himself but today we look at sola Christus. And that is, it is in Christ alone. There is no other way, there's no other opportunity for us to receive salvation by God except through the man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior of all. And we want to focus our attention this morning on that theme. And we want to look at what it meant then, and we want to look at what it means today, and the application that comes. Now, as a group of campus pastors, what we wanted to do was we wanted to hit four bases, if you will. We want to hit a home run, you got to hit each of the four bases. And there were four bases we wanted to address in this series. First of all, we wanted to bring out the historical sense. The Protestant Reformation is what, in many ways, makes us the church that we are today. We are Protestants. Uh, that means that we're different than our Roman Catholic neighbors and friends. We're, we're, we're struggling with some of the things that they have said are beliefs, and, and we've gone a different way. And that's hard sometimes to say, that we're in disagreement with friends and family. But that's what the Reformation reminds us of. There's a historical time, 500 years ago, the church had a major break uh, from being uh, either Orthodox or Catholic to a third branch of Christendom, which would be Protestantism, which we as evangelicals would find ourselves in. So it's historical. Number two, it's theological. These aren't issues, I, I want you to know in 1517, Luther didn't look at the carpet in his church and say, it's blue and I want red, I'm going to get rid of the church. Okay, he didn't say, I didn't like the songs that were singing. Uh, they had too many drums back then. They're not singing enough hymns. I'm out of the church. These were not preferential issues. These were deep and theological issues that would change the way we view God, change the way we understand salvation, change the way that we worship. 
And so we want to make sure we understand that and know that. So it's historical, it's theological, we want you to know it's biblical. Every one of these solas that, ha- that we're going to be addressing come from a biblical text. They come from the scriptures themselves. These aren't made up through the minds of men or the ideas of men, but they come from the scriptures themselves. And then finally, we want to be applicational. And what we mean by that is these aren't things that are just dusty relics that we pull off a shelf and say, wow, wasn't that nice to know what the church did 500 years ago? What I want you to recognize is just as in the day of Martin Luther 500 years ago, each of these uh, solas are under attack today. It may be a different battle, maybe for different reasons, but we need to know these solas, why we believe them, and what they mean for us today, because it is going to uh, help us and equip us to be able to address the vices and the false doctrines of today. And so this morning, we're going to in- embark on a journey looking at sola Christus, in Christ alone. So let's look to uh, Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, turn in your Bibles in the Pew Bible to page 926. Page 926. I'm going to read our passage. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump right in uh, to our message this morning. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we now know this teaching that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, Luke says, and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him, and that they may find him. Yes, he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the words that we've sung, being reminded that you are Messiah, you are our hope in glory, that you're the one and only. Now, Lord, remind us from the example of the Reformation, remind us of the example of Paul in Athens, 
the world and the culture that we find ourselves living in. The attack uh, upon sola Christus, that you are in fact the only way, the only truth, the only life, that no one can come to the Father but through you. That is under attack today, not only in our culture, but also, Lord, sadly, in the church. And so we pray that we would know what your word has to say on this subject, and that we would respond both personally and practically as we live it out amongst our neighbors and friends. We give you the glory for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. On September 23rd, 2001, America was experiencing an incredible revival. Less than two weeks after the surprise attacks of 9-11, the, the country seemed to be turning back to God. In 2001, September, the church in America would see the highest level of attendance they had seen in more than 50 years. There seemed to be a new sense of goodwill. The, the country had experienced a great tragedy, and instead of uh, turning inward and becoming isolated, the country seemingly was wanting to show goodwill and care to their neighbors, and also a response back in saying, maybe we need to turn back to God. I remember thinking back then that maybe this was the beginning of what would be the third great awakening here in America, a great revival where a country would experience and know the discipline and hand of God on their lives and that they would turn, confess their sins, and bow the knee in allegiance to him. My hopes were even greater when I saw that on September 23rd there was an announcement that on that Sunday, Yankee Stadium would be standing room only. As I turned to the television, I would not find at Yankee Stadium a baseball game, but would you believe it? In New York City, there would be a prayer meeting at that stadium. Thousands upon thousands of people would, would go into that stadium knowing the names of Gehrig and Ruth and Mantle and DiMaggio, but they wouldn't be there to cheer on uh, mortal men. What they were going to do is they were going to hearken God and ask God to come and to, and to speak to us and for God to come and heal us and for God to come and address the great injustices that we were facing. My heart was filled with great anticipation. God was on the move and he was filling Yankee Stadium with his glory. But what God intends for good sometimes, man uses for evil, right? And my heart was dashed when I found out that the master of ceremonies would be the high priestess of a new religion here in America, Oprah Winfrey. And that that prayer meeting would not be a meeting that would hearken the name of God for the glory of God in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus' name would never be uttered in the entire prayer service. In fact, they would invite uh, priest upon priest pastor upon pastor, rabbi amongst rabbi, imam amongst imam, and all manner of crazy beliefs and and religions would be invited and welcomed and placed at the same level as they would hearken uh, this God that I didn't know, this God who seemed very different than the one that is addressed in the scriptures. And what I began to see is that while we attempt to pursue God, we pursue God as the Athenians did in Paul's day, a God of our own making. A God that is not the God of the Scriptures. A God that is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A God that is not the God of the prophets or of the disciples and the apostles. No, this God was a new God. This God was a God that told all of us that no matter how we got to Him, it didn't really matter that we just needed to find a God and worship Him. I remember watching the CNN uh, broadcast of this event, and I remember uh, not much of the statement, but I remember listening to a statement of one of the anchors who was televising it. And I had to go back, and I found on C-SPAN the transcripts from this uh, particular prayer service, and this is what he said online, and I was reminded of it, and I'm struck by the statement. He said the following, He said, listen, I've been struck by two words as I've watched what's taking place at Yankee Stadium. And these two words in themselves are very much opposed to one another, he said. But yet they are symbolic to what we are, the United States. He says those two words are diversity 
and unity. Today, and I, I was getting excited because he said, today we, will, today we saw what we will one day see in heaven. I'm, I'm interested. You saw faces, so many different faces, so many different races, so many different people from different places, backgrounds, and faiths. And yet, they were all holding hands, united in one voice, at the time sharing prayers together and sharing tears together. He goes on, he says, seeking the same God, yet in their own way. The world saw what a unique belief in God alone can do, he said, destroy. What he was saying is, is if you have a belief that your God is the true God, the only thing that does is destroy. But he says, listen, but seeing that through our faiths, though they are many and diverse, that through love and charity, we can reach out in our own way. And listen to what he says. And find the same God reaching back to us in love and comfort in our time of need. On that day, at that moment, Sola Christus was under attack. Because what that CNN correspondent said was that no matter how you find God, it really doesn't matter. To whom you go through to find God doesn't matter. Just look for God and you'll find Him. And because of that, you can be tolerant. Because of that, you can show love and charity. But I'm here to tell you what that correspondent said on that day in 2001 is not what we are told as Christians to believe and affirm and practice throughout the Scripture. And so this issue of Sola Christus was a problem in 2001. It was a problem in 1517 during the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to learn it was a problem in first century Greece. So let's look first of all at how Sola Christus was under attack then. Write this down. Uh, What was it like during the Protestant Reformation? The then, the issue that Martin Luther was dealing with, where Sola Christus was under attack, was the means of salvation. The means of salvation. How does one get saved? Martin Luther had made a pilgrimage as a young Catholic priest from Germany. He had been given the opportunity to make his way to Rome, the holy city of the Catholic Church. He was filled with excitement. He believed that that's where miracles took place. He believed that's where great places of importance were. Of course, that was the seat of the papacy. The the Pope resided there. And when he got there, he was heartbroken when he began to see all manner of sinful practices taking place. He would write in, in many of his writings where he would see priests visiting brothels, where priests would steal money from the offering plates, He would see where the state and the church had had joined together and used their collective power to hurt and marginalize people. And the city that he looked forward to going to, he found it to be a place of great corruption. He saw it as a place that was no example for the holy people of God to follow. That issue would come out more and more when a man named John Tetzel would come to his city of Wittenberg, Germany, where he would pastor and be a professor in the Catholic seminary, where the man would come on what was the biggest and most prestigious building campaigns of all time. In 1517, they were doing a capital campaign for St. Peter's Basilica, where the Pope resides today. And Tetzel was given the job by the Catholic Church to go and, and, and raise funds for it, just as we've raised funds for our building, not as big as St. Peter's Basilica, of course. And there was a lot of money to be raised. It would be the single most expensive capital campaign in the history of the world. Tetzel was an incredible marketer at the time. And he went from city to city, and he would put on a play. And in the play, he would show people burning in hell. The actors would in anguish scream and, and cry out, feeling the flames and the torture of hell. People were in rapt attention because they knew and recognized, I have family that are in hell. I have a close friend who is in hell. And that's what they're experiencing in this dark and, and, and very uh, heartbreaking play. 
would culminate in John Tetzel coming and saying, this doesn't have to be. By the power of the Pope himself, the Pope has offered this opportunity that if you were to give a certain amount of money to the capital campaign of St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope says if you give money, then you can release your friends, your family, your loved one out of the flames of hell and out of the torture that they're in, and you can bring them into heaven. Sounds like a great deal, huh? Man, where do I sign up? And Martin Luther saw his parishioners lining up and putting their money down with the thought that if I put enough money down, I can release my loved ones from hell. Tetzel would use a motto that uh, would ring true during that entire time. Because what he would do is when the offering was to take place, he would bring out a coffin. And the coffin would come out and he said, Listen, people, as the coin in the coffin rings the soul from purgatory springs it's funny it rhymes in english it rhymed in german as well i don't know how that works but i think that's uncanny and so people saying i want to be released i i want to i want to release my loved ones from hell i'll put money in and they were given a sheet of paper that said your your person uh is no longer in hell because you would tell them their name they've now been brought out into heaven where's the biblical claim for that there's nothing in the bible that says that can take place sola christus was under attack instead of christ being the only way that we can redeem be redeemed now our good works or our money was able to do it and luther would say and i think it's a great line of thinking if the pope had the ability to free people from hell wouldn't love and charity and christian affection cause you to do it for free than to make money off of it i mean think about it. if you had the the cure for cancer that you could heal all people from cancer it seems kind of kind of selfish to sell that why wouldn't we just give it to everybody make sure everybody is healed from this terrible disease and that was one of the 95 rebukes or thesis that luther put on the wittenberg church door that started this reformation back then it was the means of salvation nobody questioned that jesus had a part in salvation he just didn't have the whole part notice a couple uh counterfeits to the means of salvation back then that still in some ways ring true today number one some believe and maybe you came here today thinking your salvation is is made because of christ yes jesus christ but also church attendance and so you've been coming each and every week and you're, well, why are you here? And you tell people, well, I like what Tim has to say, but you're really lying. You're like, I'm here because I don't want to go to hell. And so I'm here every week. I'm doing my duty of being at church because I believe church and Christ together equals redemption. The second counterfeit that comes is the idea that Christ plus baptism or, or communion or, or some sacrament is required. And so every time the church serves communion, or every opportunity you've had, you make sure I've been, I got wet, uh, I've been baptized, and I eat the, the little bread and the little juice every time it comes by. Because when I do those things with Jesus and these things that I've added, equals salvation. The third one that people do is that they say, it's Jesus, yes, but Jesus isn't enough. We need the saints or we need Mary. And we need these people to go on our behalf. And so we pray to them and we ask them on our behalf to, to take care of us and to help us navigate through this thing called life because Jesus isn't enough. We need dead people, dead uh, people that were devout and followed Jesus to help us get us to eternal life. Or maybe the one that seems so prevalent in our day to day is Jesus plus good works. And so you say, yeah, I need Jesus. Jesus is important, but i got to do something. And if I don't do enough, if I don't take care of enough people, if I don't give enough money, if I don't uh, uh, help in the church, and, and we live in this bondage, I hope I'm doing enough thinking that the, the scales of redemption uh, get changed by every good thing we do. And you see, today, with each of these different counterfeits, Sola Christus is under attack. 
But how about today? While the means of salvation is still an issue, I want to show you today through our text that just like in first century Athens, the issue of sola Christus isn't so much the means of salvation as it is the mediator of salvation. The issue today is that Jesus plus something else gets you saved. The question really is, do you need Jesus to be saved? Or can you find God? You can find redemption through something else. You see, the problem in that prayer service was that they had gotten rid of Jesus altogether. And they had said, listen, no matter what you believe or who you believe in, it doesn't matter. As Oprah would say, listen, we're all climbing the same mountain. It doesn't matter which side we climb from. We're still going to get to the top the same way. But let me tell you something. While Oprah may be very prevalent and popular in our day, she's dead wrong when it comes to salvation. Because what she has nullified is the one thing she can't, and that's Jesus Christ. And so Sola Christus today attacks that you even need Jesus as your Savior and Lord. So let's notice what the world says. What does the world say today? What's the world seeking When it comes to Jesus, the world in Paul's day, in our day, says four things about Jesus. What do they say about Jesus? Now notice, Paul's in Athens, in Acts 17, he's preaching about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people hear him, and they're intrigued. And so they say, listen, we're going to give you a place to talk. We've not heard these things before, and we want you to have an opportunity to share And notice in verse 22, he speaks amidst a great pantheon of gods. I see that you've got gods of all kinds around here. The Athenians, the Greeks, were known to have a god for almost anything. If it was in our world, there was a god for it. The sun god, the rain god, the moon god, uh, the land god, the sea god, the love god, the sex god. All these different gods they had. They had gods for food, they had gods for activity, they had gods of all kinds, and I haven't even gotten to the gods of Greek mythology that were alive and well in that day. And Paul stands amidst that culture, and I want you to know this morning that we stand amidst that culture where there's a god for almost everything in 2017 in our world today. But I want you to know what they do with Jesus. I want you to notice, first of all, that they reduce Jesus... They reduce Jesus to a prophet. To a prophet. In verse 22, it says that Paul is walking amongst his pantheon of gods, and he sees that there's an inscription to a god, and it says, to the unknown god. If you underline in your Bible, underline the word god, and and if you will, circle that that god has got a lowercase g. That's important. Because if it was an uppercase G, he is the supreme God. But that's not what Paul saw. And Luke is very specific that that God is a lowercase God, not the supreme God. He is just a God like all others. And they reduced Jesus to the midst of being a prophet. One-seventh of our entire world's population affirms Jesus Christ. I'm speaking of Islam affirms Jesus Christ, reveres Jesus Christ, but calls him a prophet. When we were building our our addition, the gym and the Family Life Center, we had an architect who was a Muslim man. And one day he came to drop off prints, and we were having an elder meeting. And we were uh, in, in our meeting, we stopped, we introduced ourselves, and And he was asking what we were doing, and we said, listen, uh, we're under shepherds of Jesus. And he says, bless his name. And then he would say, so what does the church do? And we're all about Jesus, bless his name. Every time we said, Jesus, bless his name, bless his name. Every utterance of him, uh, of Jesus, bless his name. And then we talked about the importance of why, because without Jesus, there cannot be salvation. He said, ooh, no, 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 no. The greatest of prophets is Muhammad, not Jesus. Jesus is like Moses, but Jesus is not Muhammad. Jesus is not the Son of God. No, no, my friends. 
That is an offense to me. Jesus is not God. You and I are okay if Jesus is a prophet, but he is not God. I want you to know this morning that there were many, both in the Islamic faith and in the world, that will say, yeah, Jesus is one of many. And as long as he stays there with a small G, everything's okay. But you put a capital letter, a capital G on that God, and we've got a problem. Jesus can fit with everybody else, but he has to stay equal with everyone else. He cannot be greater. Number two, notice they, they reduce him as a prophet. They realign him as a partner. As a partner. Notice again in verse 22, he says, that which you worship. Notice that they worshiped this unknown God, this Jesus that they didn't know. They worshiped him. They placed him amongst the pantheon of all gods. They, they liked him. They revered him. They appreciated him. They thought he had something to offer. But he could never go any higher. He could never be supreme. He had to be one of many. He had to stay there. And as long as Jesus stays on a level ground with all other gods in the lowercase manner, then Jesus is okay. How many of you have ever had a conversation with someone in the, in the workplace or in your neighborhood and, and you talk about Jesus and they like Jesus, but when you start saying Jesus is the only way, they recoil? No, 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 no. I can't believe that. That's intolerant. That's bigoted. That's not very nice. Notice they relegate him to the past. They relegate him to the past. The Greeks in that day would worship gods who hadn't done anything in the present. It was all in the past. Stories of fame and renown that had taken place where some god had done something of significance. But now they weren't doing anything altogether that important. Notice Paul says, this God who made the world, verse 24, and everything in it, notice present tense, being Lord of heaven and earth, present tense, does not live in temples made of man as though he needed anything. See, since he himself, present tense, gives to all mankind breath and everything, he's made from one man every nation, of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And he has determined allotted points and periods and boundaries for their dwelling places. What what Paul is saying is this Jesus wasn't someone who did something in the past and now is gone. He is alive and active and, and vibrant. He's doing things. He's impacting the world that he's created. He is alive and well. But what people will say is, I like Jesus... He was a good teacher. Jesus was a great leader. Jesus was a wonderful spokesperson, but he died. And so we go and we visit the the places of his birth. We go and visit the places of his death. We go and visit the places where he ministered like we would of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or some other figure of the past who did great things in their day but are no longer. But here's the problem. What Paul says is this Jesus not only died, but he rose again. He's alive and he's active. And so people that say Jesus was great back in the day, but he's no longer, attack Sola Christus because they say that Jesus was nothing more than a great man. Finally, they reassign him to one people group. Notice in the text, verse 18 Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And so here Paul comes and he's speaking. The Athenians know all the gods they have, but they hear about this new God and they, hmm, he's very interesting. We've not heard of this God, Jesus. And we want to hear him. And, and this is this guy's God. He's not our God, he's Paul's God. And we want to listen to what this Paul's God has to do with things. And so they listen. He's a foreign divinity. He's Paul's God. He's not our God. How true is it of us today that people will be okay if you say, I love Jesus, and they'll be like, that's awesome. Jesus is such a great help to me. That's wonderful. I'm so glad Jesus can help you. And then you say, but you know what? Jesus can help you as well. You know what? You've got your way. I've got my way, right? You hear that all the time. You've got your way. I'm glad Jesus works for you, but I've got a different way. 
And what Paul experienced is what we experience, that Jesus may be one way, he's not the only way. Jesus may work for one group of people, but not all people. You see, our culture, just like in Greece, reduced Jesus as a prophet, realigned him as a partner, relegate him to the past and reassign him to one people group that which was true in Athens is true in your workplace your neighborhood your family and sadly listen it's under attack even within the church sola Christus is a motto we must affirm not because we just believe in it just to believe in it but because the Bible articulates it notice this where must we stand Where must we stand? From my first point, you should be able to see we need to know and affirm and acknowledge and stand for sola Christus. And the church has to be bold because if Jesus is only one way of God, listen, we are a bunch of idiots to think that we should evangelize. Why would we evangelize telling people about Jesus if you can find God in any way? What a waste of time. Why are we sending our people to Uganda? Why are we sending our people to Alaska? Why are we sending our people to Aurora? What a waste of time and a waste of energy. Let them find God in their own way and in their own time through their own devices. But we believe that the only way they will know God is through Jesus Christ. And therefore we must preach him and proclaim him, not as a prophet, not as someone in the past, but prophet, priest, and king, king of kings, and lord of lords, no questions, because there is no competition for the God whom we serve. And so we've got to preach that and proclaim that. Well, the Bible tells us why we should. Notice a couple things. Where do we stand? I'm going to just give you these things and some scriptures to affirm it. Listen, Jesus isn't a messenger. He's Messiah. John chapter 20, verse 31. These have been written so that you may know Jesus, Lord and Savior. And that by knowing these things, you might know him and have eternal life. It is through Jesus that we experience redemption and salvation from our sins. He is not a messenger, but he's Messiah. Notice Jesus isn't just some servant, but he's Savior. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. Not a spokesperson, not a preacher, not a healer. He didn't send just another like he had sent dozens of times before. He sent in that moment, in that time and place, his one and only son. That whoever believes in his one and only son shall not perish but have everlasting life. He is not just a servant. He's Savior. Listen, Jesus isn't just a good man. He's the God man. John 1.14 We have beheld the glory. The glory of the one and only. Where have we beheld it? When Jesus took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. In the beginning, we are told, the Word was with God and the Word was God. That word, Jesus, became flesh, and he lived among us. You know, people will say, I like Jesus, he's a good man. Well, listen, either Jesus is Lord or he's a lunatic. Can't be any other thing. He's either one one or the other. I have a a sister-in-law who says, yeah, Jesus, nice guy, like what he teaches. Listen, he taught that nobody could get to heaven but through him. I don't know about you, but if a person said that today, I would think they'd loft their rocker, right? And they'll say he's a good man. Listen, the Bible proclaims he's the God man. Notice Jesus isn't a prophet, but he's the Prince of Peace. And in that description of being the Prince of Peace, Isaiah says he's the everlasting Father. He is the wonderful Counselor. He is the mighty God. And he's Prince of Peace. And finally, Jesus isn't one way, but he's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6 says. No one, 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 no one comes to the Father but through me. That's pretty exclusive. No one's going to get to God except through me, Jesus said. 
You see, the Bible is holy and utterly exclusive because the Bible from start to finish proclaims, announces one singular thread of redemption, that it is through Jesus that we can have a relationship with God. No other way. So that's why Jesus is the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, Philippians 2 says, every, 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 every. Remember that. Those words aren't there just for fun. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There ain't going to be any other altars in heaven. There will be one altar and it will be the altar for Jesus Christ, the risen one, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you know him? And do you worship him? Remember, this is a truth that we must have. This is a truth that we must affirm. Is it narrow-minded? You betcha. Is it intolerant? You got it. Is it exclusive? God wouldn't have it any other way. But this is what the Bible says. And you've got a choice to believe in it, or to rebel against it. And to recognize that based on that question, the most important question that you can ever answer is the question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then the follow-up question is, who do you say that I am? Good man, a prophet, a man relegated to the past, or king of the universe and Lord of all? That answer will define your eternal destiny. So where does it send us? Where does it send us? Let's close with this. Number one, sola Christus should remind us that our, our hope and our resting and our trust and our, and our focus has to be on Christ alone. I got nothing else in this world but Christ. I rest alone in nothing more than Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I got nothing else in this world but Jesus. And so every day I should get up and I should say, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, give me Jesus, because apart from Jesus, I can't do anything. Do you rest in Jesus alone? Paul did. I pray that you do. Where does it send us? Notice To answer that question, we have to ask some questions. Because we can say, listen, I amen this, this is great, soul of Christus, this is wonderful. Uh, But if we don't live it, then we don't believe it. Let me explain why. Number one, are you provoked? Write this down. Are you provoked? Notice in the text, it says that while while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. That word provoked is a word of convulsive agitation. He was being turned inside out. It wasn't that he was mad, but that this convulsion of his spirit, he was uneasy, he was undone. Why? Because he looked at the worship of the Greeks and he said, they're all going to hell. Because they're not worshiping Jesus. And I'm not okay with a bunch of people going to hell. Do you recognize this morning that if your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones... Your co-workers, those acquaintances that you'll have interactions with today or in this week, if they don't bow the knee to Jesus, if they don't know Jesus, they're on the road that leads to hell. Are you provoked in that way? Is there a convulsion that happens within you that says, this is not good. People are dying, and they're dying without Jesus. It's a prayer that Amanda and I have prayed for our community, for our family. Lord, provoke us. John Owen, the great reformer of Scotland, said this, God, give me Scotland or I'll die. Because I don't want my kinsmen to die. Paul said, listen, let me die, God. Let me die for for my brethren, the Israelites, who are on their way to hell. I would rather go to hell for them so that they can have eternal life. Are you provoked in that way? Sola Christus leads you to that kind of provocation. Number two, are you present? 
verses 17 and 18. Notice it leads him uh, to go and preach. So in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons. He reasoned with people in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there, the Epicureans, the Stoics. He talked to everybody. And he was present. Listen, a lot of us believe, well, I've got Jesus now, and he's mine, and now I'm going to back away from the world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, because the world's evil and the world might do bad things to me, I'm going to put a bubble around myself so that I don't have to worry about the sin of the, of the world getting on me. And that's not what Paul says. Paul says, because we have to preach Christ, we've got to be in the marketplace. We've got to be in the locales where unbelievers are. And so you say, I believe in Sola Christus. Is that provoking you and pushing you to be present in your neighborhood? Present in your communities, present in your schools, present in your workplaces, that you're a light in those communities. Are you present? Sola Christus will compel us. It will propel us to engage in the world in a way we never have before. Are you present? Are you peaceable? Sola Christus reminds us we need to be peaceable. Verse 18 and 19, we are told that Paul reasons with them. Notice in my text, it doesn't say he yelled at them. Notice in my text, it doesn't say he condemned them. Notice in my text, it doesn't say, and he judged them. You see, we, we think, listen, because the world is so combative... That will tell people, hey, listen, Jesus is Lord. And the person says, no, he's not. And you go, what's that smell? Oh, it's your soul burning in hell. No. Or we just write them off and say, how dare that sinful person? They don't believe, man. I, uh, that's on their head. I'm not going to try anymore. Notice he reasoned every day. He kept going. He kept engaging. He wanted to do everything he could. But he did so in a peaceable way. He lived out 1 Peter 3.15 that tells us that we are to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Are you peaceable? Just because Jesus is the only way doesn't mean you need to be a jerk in announcing it. Are you preaching? Verse 18, verse 22, Paul stands amidst a group of pagans and he says, listen, Jesus is the one and only. Listen, you got to have Jesus. Are you preaching? Some of us think, well, you know, I'll just be the best neighbor I can be. I'll be the best employee I can be. I'll do, I'll do the best job I can. But I'll never utter the words that Jesus is Lord. And, and listen, you can make a good living doing that. But what good is it to live a Christ-centered life if you never tell people that that's what you're doing? They'll just think you're great. You'll get all the glory. But when you remind people and tell people it's because of Christ and Him alone, things change. Are you preaching? God may not be calling us to Athens, but He's calling us to our communities, to our workplaces, to our families, to our neighbors. God gave us a command to go and preach the good news to all people. Are you preaching? Are you prepared? We'll finish with this. Are you prepared? I love that the Bible isn't a fairy tale. It's realistic. I, it, it, if this was make-believe, this is what it would have said. And Paul preached to Athens, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people came to know Jesus. Woohoo! This is awesome. Everybody believed. Nobody disagreed. No, that's not what it says. Notice there are three responses. Write these very quickly down because I'm out of time. Number one. There were those who rejected him. Who is this idle babbler proclaiming foreign deities? The guy's lost his mind. Some of you have preached Christ and people go, doo, 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 doo. You believe that? You believe a guy that lived 2,000 years ago who died on a rugged cross, his blood shed for you makes you saved, and that because of that you're going to go sleep on the clouds one day for all eternity. Okay. That's cuckoo. And maybe you've been rejected. Well, Paul was rejected. But notice, there was those who rejected, and there will be those who reject us. There will be those who will be receptive. I don't know where it's at in the text, so go back to my notes. In the text it says that there were some who said, we will listen to you again on this matter. 
And maybe you've proclaimed Christ. Maybe you've shared Christ and they say, you know, I don't know if that's for me. But very interesting, I'll hear you again. I'm not going to shut you down. I think for the most part, this is where most people are at. I think most of the people in our world, in fact, I'm quite honest with you, I've proclaimed Christ to a great many of people. I've never been rejected to my face. I've never had anybody say, you are the craziest person I've ever met. Church people tell me that all the time. Okay? But I've never received that. What I've gotten is, hey, yeah, that, I'm glad that works for you, but that's not for me. And I'm like, hey, you're receptive. You haven't shut it down. Let's keep talking. But notice what Paul is experiencing. So there are those who rejected, there are those who receptive, and there are those who received. Verse 34, a man and a woman, it says, and some others received. They joined him and believed. Do you believe that if you proclaimed Christ, that there might be some who might believe? You say, that, that's crazy. That'll never happen. Well, it worked for you. At some point, you believed. At some point, you agreed. So why wouldn't that happen for someone else? But the problem is we make all kinds of excuses why we won't preach. And because of that, we don't get the opportunity to see people brought into the kingdom. Let me close with this. Sola Christus is the rallying cry of the Reformation and needs to be sounded again in our pulpits today. Because it is something that causes us to remember why we live the way we live, why we do the things we do, why we worship the way we do, because it's all about King Jesus. We have one hope in this world, and that hope is Jesus Christ. That's why we preach Him alone. He answers every question. How can I find God? Jesus is the answer. How can I find peace? Through Jesus. How can I have forgiveness of sins? It's through Jesus. How can I have new life? It's through Jesus. How can I open the door to heaven? Only through Jesus. Who can get rid of my guilt? Only Jesus. Who can save a sinner like me? Only Jesus. Who can bring hope into this world? Only Jesus can. And we've got to believe it. And we've got to proclaim it. And we've got to share it through the mountaintops of this world so that all may hear because God says that's beautiful the feet that bring that good news let's pray Father God we come before you and I thank you for the patience of your people in listening this morning and I pray that we will uh, affirm and acknowledge and, and express the great motto of the Reformation that was alive and true in Holy Scriptures, that it is through Christ alone, it is in Christ alone that we have any hope in this life and any hope for a life to come. And so we worship and we praise and we revere and we lift high the name of Jesus. He is the melody of every song we sing. He is the thesis of every speech we give. He is the heartbeat of all that we say and do. Lord, I pray that that would not just be a motto that is muttered on our lips, but is a truth that we live by. So send us forth in a world that says there are other gods and there are other ways and, and to each their own. Let us go out with that very intolerant and very exclusive and that singular claim that it is Jesus Christ alone, for His glory alone, through His redemption alone, that we might have life and relationship with God. Oh, we love you for the gift of Jesus, Father. And we now leave this place with him in our hearts and our minds and with him as our mission to a lost world. Give us the courage. Give us a provoked spirit that we may go and do what Paul did for your glory and namesake. In Christ's name we pray all things and all God's people said, Amen.